Hi, I'm Dr. George Stolforis, and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on the National Disability Insurance Scheme, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. But before we go any further, please do me a favour and hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and select the notification bell so you can be notified of future episodes. On today's show, we're talking about how to manage your funds efficiently, creatively, and innovatively so you can get the best outcomes out of your NDIS plan. Now, while there's a bit of focus on self-management, you do not need to self-manage in order to benefit from this one. It will be relevant to you if you're client-managed and even if you are adversary-managed and they're looking to have a bit more control over your plan. So, check it out. Sam Bennett, Sam Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. How about we start with some introductions? So, uh, Sam Bennett. Hi, George. Um, yeah, I'm joining you from uh, National Disability Insurance Agency, where I'm a general manager for policy and research at the agency. Really delighted to be on your podcast talking about such an important subject this afternoon. Glad to have you, Sam. Sam Hi, George. Thanks for having me. I'm here on um, unceded Ghana lands in South Australia, um, and I run a company called The Growing Space that does support coordination and information sharing, and I am mum to two participants who are on the scheme. Now, Sam Taylor, you're a bit of an expert, a bit of a guru in self-management, and I am so thrilled to have you on the show. I, I know that you love self-management. Can you, can you tell us why you love self-management so much? It's funny. Your introduction of me as an expert or guru really leads into this world because I don't think I am. I'm an expert in my life and I'm an expert in my children's lives with them. Um, And that's where self-management is extraordinary because you actually get to be your own expert of your own life. So, you know, as self-managers, we get to banish, you know, all the labels that the NDIS uses for supports, you know, all the acronyms, STAs and ADLs and all the bits and pieces. We don't have to worry about that as self-managers. We just do what needs doing to live a really good life. We're the innovators. We're the leaders of the scheme. We're the ones trying to figure out how to do things so that we and the people that we love, if you're a nominee, for example, can live good lives. You know, we make our claims on support categories, George. We don't use line items and we don't use the price guide. We do. We can be innovative, right? Yeah. We can do things outside the box and that that's that's really powerful and that can that can change lives for the better. Are there any disadvantages of that? Well look it's a little bit of work. You know, you've got to keep your records. It's, it's nice if other people would do that, but you know, you can use your self management funding to ask someone else to keep those records and do that work. So you get to prioritize how you use those funds. Indeed, it's your decision entirely. Sam, your son uh, was featured in the self-management guide that, that, that came out a few years ago. He was in the Australian talking about how he self-manages, and it's a really exciting and uh, interesting story for people to hear. So can you just tell us that story so that the listeners can know how your son has been benefiting from self-management? Sure. I mean, it's just a piece of it, I guess, the part that was in the Guide to Self-Management. And I kind of feel like everyone's heard this story, but I keep getting questions about similar things. So I'm I'm guessing people haven't heard it all. Um, But Ben and one of his best mates, Charlie, you know, they they were 18 years old and just sort of become adults, um, keen to be thinking about moving out in the future and about becoming, well, doing adult things. And I I guess both have been exposed to families drinking alcohol and what have you. Um, And I, to be honest, was a little nervous about them um, using alcohol inappropriately and not having the same understanding that someone without a cognitive disability might have about the dangers and stuff. And I thought, 
they really needed to learn about this, but, you know, the fat old 50-year-old woman mum is not really the right person to teach somebody that stuff, an 18-year-old young man. So I approached one of um, one of Ben's workers, Clary, a young man who was an OT student uh, working independently, and I asked him, do you reckon you could take the boys away and teach them about this stuff? And he said, oh, yeah, I'll be up for that. Of course he was, which was pretty cool. So I negotiated with Clary um, what a good daily rate for him would be. Um, I booked an Airbnb. I booked an apartment in the city and uh, organised sort of a budget with the guys and they went away for the weekend and they learnt about safe alcohol use. They learnt, they went out late night, night clubbing to see what drunk people looked like and how to avoid them. They learned about, you know, all the shenanigans that might go on in the bathrooms at a nightclub and how to avoid that and to not get engaged and involved with that. Um, All sorts of stuff. They went and played mini golf, actually, um, at a mini golf place that also serves alcohol. So they got to see how they got worse at mini golf the more beers that they had. So there were lots of lessons there that you wouldn't get (laughs) from your mum, I'm thinking, like, yeah, that would be really tough. And, of course, um, when I went through the guide, um, this you know, when you go through that guide to self-management and you look at that can I buy it list, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, I was able to tick all of those things. This was, this was an educational experience for these guys um, and it had the added bonus of giving me a break from the kids and giving those, the boys, a break from their parents as well because most 18-year-olds don't spend 24-7 in their family homes. They're off with their mates. They're off up the river. They're camping. They're going down the beach. They're doing other stuff. And um, Ben and his friend Charlie don't have as many of those opportunities. Um, and this was one opportunity to do that. How much of that experience was funded by the NDIS and how much was yeah, funded sure. by your, your own family's money? Well, what I do is I try, whenever I use my NDIS funds, I think about it, in term, at a really basic level of what would we spend if he didn't have a disability? Like he'd still go off and have party weekends with his mates, right? But most 18-year-olds are not going to go book an Airbnb. They're going to stay at a friend's shack or they're going to go camping or they're going to crash at a parent's house when the parents are away. But our kids with their disabilities need more support than that. And I also needed a break from a lot of that caring work and responsibility as well. And he needed a break from being in my face all the time, me being in his face all the time. So from that regard, I thought the accommodation was a disability-related expense. Personally, I don't think the food was a disability-related expense, so we didn't actually claim all of the food. Uh, We certainly didn't claim when they went out to the pub for dinner, for example. Everyone will do this differently. When you read the price guide, for example, or the operational guidelines, it will tell you that food is included. But I try to take it down to a really base level and say, what would I be spending if he wasn't disabled and what would we what are we spending just because of his disability and the stuff that we spend because of his disability is the stuff that I claim through his NDIS so I claimed the accommodation I claimed Clary I claimed um no I didn't claim transportation because they went on the trams everywhere because they were in the city I think I claimed some of the smaller activities but not the big one they went to the beer and barbecue festival and I didn't didn't claim those tickets at all yeah. George, can I give another example of a different weekend that's not yeah, in- Another weekend we booked a weekend for uh, Ben and his friend Charlie and another friend for the three of them, again with Clary, and this was down closer to the beach because um, it turned out Cla- Charlie's parents were away for the weekend and they would have re- he would have required care anyway and I just needed a break too. So it all, it all worked out. Anyway, we booked this weekend at an Airbnb down the beach and I said to Ben before he left, hey, don't forget about your friend, uh, I don't know, make up a name, um, don't forget about your other friend who lives down in that area. You might want to give him a call and see if he wants to come and hang out with you at some point during the weekend. Anyway, the boys went down for the weekend. They had a great weekend. They watched, you know, they, they sat around, they drank beers, they watched movies, they, you know, they went kayaking on the river. They did, they had some fun stuff. Um, months later, I bumped into the other guy's mum, the guy who lives down in that area, who was not part of the weekend, right? And she said, oh, Sam, that was so great that my guy went and crashed the night with your guys. I said, what, sorry, what do you mean? Well, it turned out that that young Thomas or whatever his name was 
Ben had called Thomas and said, come over and hang out with us. He had come over. They had played beer pong and watched movies and eaten pizza until Thomas was feeling sick as a goog, crashed on the sofa and stayed overnight. And he was another young man with disability as well. And this was um, what could be more typical than a group of blokes hanging out and crashing on the sofa overnight. Yet that is an experience that is simply not afforded to the vast majority of young people with intellectual disability. And it should be just a natural part of growing up and becoming independent. Um, And these guys got to do that. And the best part of it for me was that I didn't even know about it, that Clarence Worker was confident enough and knew these guys enough through other events that he was comfortable to have Thomas come and stay overnight. And I just thought that was brilliant. What I loved about that is it was a a great outcome that didn't need a... 10,000 support coordinators to organise. It just happened, right? And you know what else, George? It didn't cost a single cent more. Tom's plan didn't get claimed for anything because we'd already negotiated it all with Clary and it was set and done and Clary was happy. Absolutely. It's it's really around the flexibility and the relationships that you can get when when you're able to use the funds. Absolutely. Yeah. Sam Bennett, what are your reflections on, on Sam's ex- story and her, her son's experience? Well, it's such a great example, isn't it? It's creative, um, it's all legitimate, um, and it's about an ordinary life. And clearly the outcome um, uh, is, is fantastic in this instance. And that's the, that's the, whole, the whole point with, with self-management and the kind of flexibility that it, that it affords you. Um, I'm really um, focusing on who, who can self-manage. So um, we know that um, I think about 30% of NBS participants are currently self-managing, which is, you know, it's not um, a small percentage. What do we need to think about in terms of who can't self-manage? Sam, I've done it. Look, the agency, we want everybody that wants to choose to self-manage to be able to do that safely um, and effectively. It's, a, as you've heard from Sam, two great examples. It's the way you can get the most flexibility out of your NDIS funding, and that's what the scheme was, was all about, um, right? So um, we're really keen that everybody should be able um, to, to self-manage. There are some... Some people that can't under the legislation. So if, and it's a small list, but if you're um, bankrupt or you're insolvent un, under administration, then you can't self-manage. Um, and if the agency deems there to be an unreasonable risk associated with you self-managing, then you might also be prevented from, from doing so. And, and that's things like um, a risk of, of financial um, or physical abuse and, and, and neglect, those sorts of, uh, of things. Um, but everybody else, in theory, should be able to. Not, not everybody's going to want to. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Um, Sam referred to some of the things you, you do have to take on by way of responsibilities if you're a self-manager that perhaps aren't the same for other people, um, finding the, the providers, keeping the records, paying the bills, um, etc. But there's actually a lot that the scheme can do to support people to build capacity uh, in those uh, in those areas, um, and self management shouldn't be an all or nothing proposition either. We'd encourage people to talk to their LAC, their planner, their support coordinator about how they might get started. You can manage part of your plan um, rather than rather than all of it um, as well. So there's a lot of lot of options. Um, you're right. Thirty percent is, is is spot on. So you've got your data. Um, uh, up to date there, um, George. Um, it is, it's quite a large number. If you think about the, the number in our scheme now, it's over 150,000 participants are now self-managing. So while the, the ratios remained flat for a few years, the number obviously grows that are self-managing every year. Um, we've thought about the things that make it hard um, for people to self-manage, and they're they're quite consistent actually. If you look at research from other schemes that have similar models of self-management around the world, and the two things that make it 
hardest for people to get real benefits from self-management are firstly how easy or difficult the administering agency, the NDIA, makes it for you to self-manage. So really the bureaucracy around, around the process. And the second thing is how, how flexibly you're able to use funding. Um, and it's those sorts of things we've been trying to look at in improvements that we're making um, to self-management um, at the moment, because we want it to be something that people can, can do if they want to. Well, let's talk about those um, improvements. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the, the recent updates so everyone's uh, up to date with what's happening? Definitely can, George, yeah. Um, the work you're referring to, though, uh, is work we did last year to develop a new self-management um, policy. Um, and I should say, um, uh, before we get into what that does and, and the changes that it makes, a, a big thank you to you, George, and you as well, um, Sam, because uh, your um, wisdom and advice throughout the process of developing that policy, I hope you can see has made it a much better uh, better policy as a, as a result. For people that are interested, we published it on our website at the back end of, of last year, so I think in December. Um, and this is part of a, a big investment the agency's been making in the last year or so um, in co-designing improvements to the scheme in areas where participants have told us that we need to do better. And self-management, as I've said, is, is one of one of those um, areas. Um, the policy, in a nutshell, is all about just making self-management simpler and easier and more effective for people to use. Uh, it's about us having clearer, um, more consistent guidance um, to support self-managers. Um, and it's about um, how we support our, our delegates, our planners, um, and our local area coordinators to be making more consistent decisions and to have more enabling conversations with people about self-management. And I think the big change in it, um, and hopefully you can see this in, in, the, in the final policy, um, is it promotes what I would call as a, as a supportive and developmental approach to self-management by the agency. Um, and what I mean by that is we're seeing building someone's capacity to self-management as a really valuable goal in and of itself. Um, and we're better defining through this policy the kinds of supports that we can put in place um, to do that for participants, for um, uh, child representatives and, and nominees that may want to, uh, to self-manage. to self -manage. There's no big changes in here that people need to be, be worried about. It doesn't fundamentally change what's expected of you as a, as a self-manager, um, but it is just about making things easier and clearer. Um, and we'll be doing quite a lot this year to help to implement that, that policy. And we, we hope it will result in more people giving it a go. There's a couple of things I would, I would draw out that we'll be doing this year um, as part of our work to implement the policy. Um, one is that we'll be updating the self-management guide. Um, and we've talked about that already. We've, we've heard it's such an important resource and that people have found it really valuable um, over the years. And we want to really bring that up to date to put some more examples in it to make it clearer wherever we can so that people can feel really sort of secure uh, in the knowledge that they're self-managing in a way that is, you know, um, in line with the rules, but is also going to get them a really good good outcome. So we'll be doing some work um, to update that. Um, and people can expect to see that by about the middle of the year. Um, and the other bit that's really exciting um, as well that will take shape this year is, is some training and resources um, that we want to produce um, for participants. And I'm talking about things like online um, modules and orientation packages. If you're um, starting to think about self-managing um, for the first time, um, and we want those to cover practical advice from people that are that are self-managing, from people that have walked the walk um, and can tell you their um, stories of how it's worked for them. Because I think, you know, that's always the most powerful way um, to, uh, to, to learn how to self-manage well. Um, so again, we'd expect to see those emerging um, a bit later in the year, and we hope people will find both of those things really, uh, really useful in helping them to self-manage effectively. Sounds like some good resources. Um, so I know that your organisation has some good resources as well, and uh, you're also um, 
uh, a board member as a lawyer of the Southern Editor Hub. And do you tell us a bit about the resources on both the growing space and the Southern Editor Hub? Yeah, sure, George. <clears throat> I think to start off with, the Self Manager Hub should be. You know, you know, if you could make something compulsory, I would. I heard, I feel like every self-manager should have access to those resources on the self-manager hub. So it's a website. I think there's uh, several hundred different resources and links to resources about self-management, about living a good life, about planning, um, all the things you need to do to, you know, to live a good life as a disabled person or how to support someone um, to live a good life as a disabled person. So I really really strongly recommend that people go and check those out. Um, Self-Manager Hub, by the way, is not for profit. Uh, George and I are both volunteer board members. Um, and um, so, you know, there's, there's nothing in it for us other than promoting self-management. We love it. Um, on the flip side of that, my business, The Growing Space, we do do online trainings and face-to-face -face stuff and, and support coordination. And, of course, they're all paid services and we're not a not-for-profit. Um, but we do have a website membership and we do uh, run courses and bits and pieces as well. So very welcome. Uh, would love people to check out what we have to offer as well at, at The Growing Space. Yeah, the advice that I do people is to, you know, as Sam Bennett said, you don't need to manage the whole plan. Like, start with a proportion of your plan and see how it goes, and you'll slowly develop different skills. And I'm pretty good at, at maintaining, you know, the, the, the receipts and the, the budget side and the, you know, the HR side, because I employ my own support workers. Um, but I didn't gain those skills overnight. It was like a, a, a developmental process. And after a little bit of time, you get more confident, don't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And you do make a lot of mistakes when you start out too. You claim things from the wrong categories and you you hire people that turn out to be terrible, <laughs> you know, all of those things. But you do learn as you go along and you get you do get better at it. It doesn't mean you won't make mistakes for the rest of your life. We all do. In fact, you can't grow without making mistakes. Um, so we all do that. But there is a lot of support for that, you know. You, you can... Um, you know, you can go to those resources that we just talked about and there's just so much peer support as well. George and I, we run a, um, a Facebook group, you know, the Self Manager Hub Facebook group, and that's an incredible resource. We've got something like 20,000 people in there all talking to each other and, and seeking advice and support from other self-managers. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very lively group. It is a lively um, as an accurate word, George. <laughs> um, Sam, is anything that the... Agencies should be doing differently, um, do you think, in the space of self-management? Yeah, yeah, of course there is. We can all we can all always do better, and the agency is no exception. Um, I'd like to see people get more support to self-manage. I think um, I think that a lot of uh, planners and LACs sort of write people off very early in the process, rather than think about well, what are the supports we can put into a plan to support someone to be able to learn to self-manage. I, I mean, I've never had an LAC or a planner in a meeting suggest and say, well, why don't we just make $10,000 of your plan self-managed so you can give it a go and a try and, and why don't we give you put in some money for some extra training so that you can learn more about it. Um, so I haven't seen that. So I'd really love to see the agency getting better at that. Um, and the other area, which is actually pretty concerning, is when the agency, it feels like... They're arbitrarily shifting people out of self-management into plan or agency management, um, and they're not having that discussion with the participants at the time. So they're not supporting people to understand, well, A, that it's even happening, or B, why it's happening, and C, what they can do about it. And I really think the agency needs to make that a really big focus because we're seeing so much of that right now. It's, like, it's happening a lot. Um, it needs to be a very transparent process. Um and people need to understand why it's happening because sometimes a planner will say, "Well, look, we we saw an invoice from a company that could have not, would have nothing to do from a nail salon, for example," and then they'll switch you over to agency management. But it might turn out that that person's getting fake nails because they've got neuropathy and they can't type without fake nails. Totally disability related and appropriate to be claiming. So 
you know, there's lots of different reasons why people claim different things and the agency needs to do a better job of finding out what people are doing and why um, and supporting those choices where they are appropriate. Sounds like that. Look, on the support, I, I completely agree. that You've both described it very well um, and the policy we've, we've developed does that this needs to be a developmental process um, and that we do need to get better at, at making sure that people have support to give it a go um, and that our staff are using the guidance that we provide consistently in enabling participants to, um, to, to choose to self-manage where that's their, um, where that's their, their intention. Um, we, we, there are supports that can help people to, to build capacity in, the, in those areas. And we would agree that they're, they're underutilized at the moment. And also that actually, you know, whilst the headline numbers we've talked about, the 30%, I, I think it, it compares reasonably well to other schemes internationally. Um, if you actually look under that at take up of self-management for different people, um, different age groups, people with different disabilities, it's actually quite, quite varied. And, and I do think that that suggests that you know we need to do some more work to ensure that this is being offered and um, can be taken up um, by anybody that really wants to do so. So that that's the intention. I think we're on a journey with it, um, Sam, um, and hopefully we'll, we'll we'll get there or closer to where we want to be with some of the work that we've got planned and that I've talked about um, uh, that we'll be doing this year. Um, and look, the, the the issue you've raised around. Um, uh, delegates, planners, um, uh, sort of changing someone's plan management uh, sort of um, uh, option without their without their knowledge. Um, I, I am I am aware of it. We're, we're looking into it um, at, at the moment, and we want to make sure clearly that all the right rules and processes are, are, are being being followed. That there are limited reasons I've referred to earlier where someone should be stopped from self managing. That, you know whether they're bankrupt, whether we've become aware of a new of a new risk that can't be well managed, or whether there are instances where someone, for example, is you know repeatedly spending in a way that's not in accordance with their um, with with their plans. So there are there are some legitimate reasons for um, for that. Um, but as a first port of call, we should be checking in with participants to to see how their supports are going, um, to see how we can manage any new risks if there are any. Um, and then to explain our, our decisions um, uh, where we've where we've we've made them. So, look, if this is a concern for any of your listeners, George, then hopefully they can be somewhat reassured that you know we'll, we'll take it very seriously. We are looking into the matter. I should also say I don't think it's a a highly prevalent sort of nationwide issue in the context of the hundred and fifty thousand or so people that are self managing. It can be quite hard to get the the practice and the guidance consistently applied when you're operating at that that kind of um, scale. So, look, I, I do hope by some of the things we're doing to make it clearer and easier, the guidance for our staff, we will start to, to see some more consistent practice, and we will address the sorts of issues that that have been raised um, uh, by Sam and others um, where we where we find them. Sam, I know that a lot of your uh, participants, the participants that you support at the growing space would have gone through the audit process. And a lot of us are uh, quite uh, nervous about, oh, what happens if I get audited? What receipts do I need? And, you know, what, what's the, the process like? Um, how's that process been for some of the people um, I mean, the word audit is pretty scary, but really all you do is you get a letter usually with a couple of payment request numbers on it and it says provide the receipts, please, for this or the invoice. That's it. And if you've kept your good records, it should be pretty easy to do it. Um, I think what happens, of course, is if you don't have evidence for that, then they might go a bit deeper and it might take a bit more, but that's totally appropriate. It's, it's really good you asked about audit because it just sounds so scary George, and people do get terrified when you use words like that and it conjures up these visions of going to prison and jail and, oh, I messed up and all that. But I think it's really important for people to know about the difference between fraud and what we call misuse. 
um, and the agency may have different terms, but these are the terms that we sort of tend to use. So fraud, um, have you ever seen it, George, where somebody puts on Facebook that they spent their money on something and then all these people leap onto the post and say, oh, that's fraudulent, you're in trouble, you're in trouble, and you realise it's not fraudulent at all if you claim something from the wrong support category. That's a mistake. That's an error. Fraud is when you... Um, Fraud is when you do something deliberately, right? Fraud is when you know you're doing the wrong thing, like you claim for a service that you never received and you pocket the cash or you buy a corporate box at the cricket with your kids' funding, right? That that stuff's really clearly fraud. That's when you're doing something deliberately to profit, whether it be financially or status or whatever. Misuse is when you make a mistake. So mix, misuse, you claim from the wrong support category or you... Um, you buy a laptop for your 10-year-old at primary school because the school says they need one for communication um, and for, for not for communication, for access to the curriculum, and the school says they can't afford it, right? Now, most people wouldn't know that it's not actually the NDIA's responsibility to pay for something like that. It's actually the responsibility of the school. But so if you go and p- claim for something like that, that's not fraud, that's misuse. And the agency is not going to, I mean, there's no criminal charges here. There's no even room in the legislation for criminal charges on this stuff. The worst that can happen is they might switch you away from self-management, which of course you would argue, um, and you may be required to pay it back. But the legislation also allows the agencies to forgive those debts as well. So there's a lot of leeway and flexibility in there um, and capacity for you to make a mistake and to learn and to do it right next time. I think it's really important for people to know that. Oh, that's so useful, Sam. So there are many reflections on, on that in terms of um, what the NDA are finding um, when they're auditing self-managers? I mean, firstly, I, I, I agree. Look, fraud, fraud is really incredibly rare when it comes to, to, to self-managers. Um, that's consistent with research from elsewhere, so we shouldn't necessarily be surprised. Self-managers, you know, by and large, are very thoughtful and diligent in how they go about self-managing um, their plan. That's the vast majority of, uh, of cases. Um, uh, and, and as Sam put it very well, fraud is about doing something deliberately wrong, and that's not by and large, what, what we see. We, we see some common mistakes and what Sam has described as misuse we, we see. And look, I'm, we're not keen on misuse either, but there is a very big distinction between that um, and fraud that I think Sam described um, very well. And, and, and as you said, it's, it's things like claiming from the wrong categories. It's the wrong date on a payment request. It's broadly anything that could be construed as not spending in accordance with the plan. But as long as you're following you know, the advice that's there in the self-management guide um, and availing yourself of that, you're keeping your records as you should, um, then look, it's not, it's not something that um, uh, you should be too anxious about. We see an error rate, if you can call it that, of around 7%, I think, in payment requests from, from self-managers in the sorts of areas um, we've talked about. Um, and that isn't fraud. That, that's where we should be helping people to do better um, and to hopefully avoid those sorts of mistakes in, in the future. The compliance teams that, that run um, our, our sort of internal reviews around, around self-management, um, you know, that's a really important process in how we protect the integrity and the reputation of the scheme, but it's also a, a learning opportunity uh, if we're doing it well. Um, so we're not trying to catch people out. Uh, we do want to help people to not make decisions that you know are at odds with with um with, with uh, what you should be doing as a as a self as a self manager so um we're, we're doing some trials actually at the moment as a pilot our compliance team are running um to try and um uh develop a more educational developmental approach that reduces the anxiety that, that self managers can sometimes feel uh, engaging with these with these processes but but um as i said hopefully people shouldn't, by and large, have anything to fear. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's important that people aren't afraid um, to be innovative and, 
and to use their fund in a way, um, in a way that's going to um, help them achieve their, you know, the, an ordinary and a good life, really. Um, so you did say um, you need to use your funding in accordance with your plan. I actually think that very few people, people know what that means, but the NDA seems to think that, that, that we all, you know, have our plan constantly, in, you know, um, uh, on, this, on our kitchen table. Like, um, I can say that, you know, I, I haven't read my plan in a couple of years. Have you said? <laughs> um, what, what does that mean, um, Sam Bennett, to um, spend in accordance with the plan? Well, people, people can look at the, the policy we published at the end of last year because we defined it in there um, as clearly and carefully as, as, as we could. Um, you know, really, it means that you need not to be spending your funding on things that are illegal, uh, on drink and drugs and gambling and obvious things, um, things like that, uh, that you need to be spending in a way um, that helps you to meet the goals in your, your plan. Um, and that that isn't something that should um, be funded either by um, another service system or you could describe as an ordinary cost of living. It needs to be related to your, your disability uh, needs. So uh, there's page, page eight, the famous page eight in the self-management guide is also where we set some of this material out. Um, Sam and um, her organization have got a number of good examples to help with this, um, with this as well. Um, but really, it's, it's, it's a number of principles that you need to be thinking through, some questions you need to ask yourself and on a practical sense every time um, uh, you, you want to do something new with your funding. shouldn't be there to constrain creativity, but does provide some important guardrails um, to make sure that NDIS funding is being used in a way that's effective, appropriate and good value for money. No, that's not good. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all good with all the things that you've, that you've mentioned. Um, and, you know, I think that it's, yeah, the way I think of it is it was disability related. And, you know, it's, it's um, essentially um, going to help me achieve the goals of my plan. Then, you know, I'll just go for it. Yeah? Is that fair, Santa? Uh, <clears throat> mostly. I think, you know, you still got to think too that you can actually afford it within your plan and that you can, um, and that it's not the responsibility of someone else, you know. I mean, it's not responsibility. Uh, yes, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. And, and responsibility of someone else doesn't just mean other government systems, it means people too, you know. I mean, it's a, every parent has to change the nappy of a six month old. The NDIS shouldn't be paying for a support worker to do that. So, you know, you've got to think about what is typical and appropriate for families. Um, However, and if the mum has a disability, what about them? Yeah, so that's the mum's plan, not the child's plan. So that's yeah. different. So when it's, when it's the, the mum that has the disability, that is a disability-related need to have help to change the child's nappy. But if it's the child that has a disability at six-month-old, then it's always a parent's responsibility to change the nappy of a six-month-old. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it really is um, quite straightforward when you think of I, it that way. I like to break it down. You know, the, the core of it for me is I look at every time I want to spend money in the plan, I think, would I spend this? Would my son be spending this if he wasn't disabled? Is this something that he needs just because of his disability? And if that's the case, then I fund it out of his plan. And if it's not, um, and, of course, that varies for different people in different situations as well. 100%. Uh, and that's why when, you, when, when we're in um, a situation where someone says, can I buy that? You know, you have to say, well, that's entirely up to your, your own circumstances. No one else can, can make that decision apart from yourself. I get so stroppy on Facebook when people ask, can I buy this? And, you know, a third of the people say no, a third of the people say yes, and a third of the people say you're going to go to jail. And I just, 
I look at it and I just I just want to start slapping people around because the answer is that nobody on Facebook knows the answer because no one knows the intimate details of that person's life and what the related need might be. Indeed. We're going to um, move on to uh, some questions from our uh, wonderful Self Manager Hub uh, Facebook group. Um, so um, people want to know um, why the call centre staff, why the planners and LOCs uh, are not referring people to the Self Management Guide. Um, and and that that uh, that they, they want to know, um, you know, if um, there can be more training and um, that there'll be better better service through through those avenues around self management. Look, I think I think this is about consistency of advice, isn't it? Really, and um, you know, we certainly heard in the work we did to develop the policy last year from people that that was an issue. You could call and get one answer from somebody and a different one from somebody else. And, and in many ways, that's very similar to what Sam was, was just describing now in terms of um, the Facebook debates um, about this. Sometimes that's entirely appropriate for the reasons we've just covered, because you know it will depend on your individual circumstances, um, whether you, know, you can buy one thing for some person might be fine for somebody else it might be um, a different answer but we do want you know clear and consistent guidance consistently applied wherever we can um, and I think you know supporting people to um, think about how they spend in accordance with their plan is is one of those areas um, we will be doing more training as a um, one of the actions to implement our policy this year with our own staff, contact centre, um, planners and, and local area um, coordinators. Um, and we hope through that that people will get more consistent, hopefully consistently good, um, as far as possible kind of predictable um, experience with, with, with the scheme. So um, I'm confident we'll get there with some of the new resources we're, we're producing, but it's still very much um, on a journey. I don't think we can expect, you know, call centre staff and LACs to understand and work through that with everybody. So that can I buy it list is really, it's quite a significant list of things to check through. And it's not just a tick box, check box. You actually need to understand what they're asking. Often, you know, one of the examples is it's got to be, um, you know, it's got to be good good value, right? Good reason, reasonably, well, it's got to be good value when you spend your money. And people always think that just means, well, I need a tipping kettle, therefore I've got to compare all of the tipping kettles. But it's bigger than that. Is is there a different way to make coffee? You know, maybe it's not about the price. Um, and people don't um, – people need training on how to use that list. I think that's really important. So I'm really glad that um, Sam and the agency are working really hard on making a whole lot more of that stuff happen. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, the next question um, is really around a, a, a problem that's um, been around for years, and that's uh, the community perception that you have to spend every cent in your plan in order not to have your funding cut. Sam Bennett, what are your thoughts on that? Well, look, we, we understand that there's a lot of reasons why somebody might not spend every cent in their plan during the course of, of a year. It could be for entirely planned reasons. It could be for entirely unplanned reasons as, uh, as well. Um, every reasonable and necessary decision we make should be based on a person's individual needs and circumstances at that point in time, considering all the things that we need to take into account for our, um, our legislation. Um, and people should expect if they're in the scheme for a long time, um, that their funding might go up and down uh, as circumstances change or as one goal is achieved and another is articulated. Um, that's just the way a scheme like ours um, should run. Um, but for that to work really well, I think it all comes down to trust. Trust that the scheme is going to be there for you when you need it to the extent that you you need it and, and look I, I think we're still 
on a journey with that. It, it's still a young scheme. Um, an insurance model with an individualized funding approach is, is a very new new thing. A lot of people getting support for the very first time um, still. So I think it's just something we need to keep working on so that we can um, really build that trust between the NDIS, the agency, and all of our participants. Thank you. Look, I, I don't actually see this happen in real life. And to be honest, if someone doesn't use half of their plan, they maybe didn't need all of their plan unless they've got a good reason. So if they can't articulate a reason and say, well, look, we just couldn't get workers or it was the pandemic and I was locked inside my house, if they don't have a good reason, then maybe they don't actually need double the money that they used last year. So um, use it or lose it. I don't know. We, we don't actually see that borne out too much on the ground when people don't use, if there's good reasons, they're generally getting roll- rollovers or, you know, repeat plans anyway. Uh, the last question relates to the NDIS price guide. Um, but the question was, can it be renamed to highlight that it is for registered providers? Um, Sam Bennett, what are your thoughts on, um, on, on that question? Well, it's, it's true it only applies to registered providers. It's also true self-managers don't need to use registered providers. I, I suppose I can't see, see us being in a rush to rename it just because I do think there's some value in it as a resource to give some indication to self-managers of what an appropriate price might be for a, for a support. Um, and may, maybe rather than renaming it, it's more about just the training and the guidance we put around mm. it. People are just a bit clearer on some of the things that you've outlined. Santa Anna, you have some thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with uh, Sam Bennett on this. Um, I do think it's important for participants to know, though, that registered providers can charge self-managers higher than the price guide rates. It's not, it's not about being a provider, a registered provider or not, it's about how the budget is managed in a plan. So for agency managed and plan managed budgets in a plan, then the prices in the price guide apply. If the line item or if the support category is self-managed, then the price guide um, doesn't apply, whether whether the provider that delivers the service is registered or not. And I often say to people that uh, one of the things about being a soft manager is that you're, in, you're out there in the open market. There are going to be people who are going to try and get the highest price that they can, and you have a job to uh, get the lowest price or the best value for money as you can. And, and that means you need to shop around. That means you need to talk to other people about, you know, where they're getting good value and, and in the end, you know, you're going to be able to stretch your funding further by doing that work and, 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 and I think we can all you know, benefit from that. I think that goes two ways, George. I think you can save a lot of money. Now, we go to the local physio down the road rather than an NDIS disability physio and we pay much less than we would pay if we went to a registered provider. Um but on the other hand, some innovation in the scheme might cost a whole lot more. Like when my son moves out, I want a team leader and I'm going to, they're going to, co- I want to pay them more than $62 an hour because I want somebody who manages a whole team. Now, everything underneath is probably going to cost me less because they'll be employed. But that team leader might be a contractor that costs me $70 or $80 an hour. And that's okay because that's going to, make my system work. Um, so I think having that flexibility is just super important for self-managers to go both ways. I love that. I think that's a really good example of how we can be flexible and, and you know, focus on the outcome rather than the, the, the necessary dollars there. This has been a really good conversation. Are there any last thoughts that you'd like to leave our, our listeners with. I'll start with you, uh, Sam Bennett. Well, just a big thank you, George, again. I think it's a great topic for, for, to discuss and um, great to be 
uh, have the opportunity to, to do so on your, your podcast. Um, these are really important issues, self-management and the creativity that comes with it. We need that creativity and innovation front and centre in how to progress. So um, just I'll just leave you with that. Thank you, George. Uh, I think my the thing that I really want everyone to come away with is that self-managers, when they are innovative and do really interesting and different things, even when they make mistakes, are the leaders in ability support. So there are things that self-managers try out that are a little bit kooky, a little bit different, um, and then they finesse it and they make it work and then other providers that are registered providers look at it and go, hey, that's actually pretty cool. I reckon we could do that and we could deliver that to more people. And I, so I like to think of self-managers as being basically the industry leaders across the world. You know, um, people house sharing and people doing all sorts of different things are things that came about because of self-managers. You know, registered providers did not come up with that stuff. Right, that was self-managers that do those things. And so we've got a responsibility to make self-management continue um, and to support it and encourage it and train self-managers and help self-managers to live big, full lives um, because a piece of that is going to be carried on to everybody uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the sector and in the disability world, and that's really powerful and really exciting. What a great note to end us all on. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Thanks, George. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. Thank you to our podcast partner for this episode, the National Disability Insurance Agency. We love your feedback, so please hit the like button and share your thoughts with us in the comment section below. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.